From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cervical cancer is one of the most successfully treatable cancers if it is caught early. Today, I'm talking about this with Dr. Allison Roy. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Roy. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the cervix is the opening to the uterus. What can you tell us about cancers that begin in the cervix? Sure. As a GYN oncologist, I specialize in cancers of the GYN organs, so uterus, cervix, vagina, vulva, the fallopian tubes, and the ovaries. Cervical cancer is the third most common type of cancer that I see behind uterine and ovarian. And cervical dysplasia, or precancerous lesions, are even more common. Um, this is because cervical cancer is one of the few cancers that we have good screening for, and as you said, very treatable if caught early. What is, you use the term cervical dysplasia, what is that? Sure, so cervical dysplasia is the term that we use for precancerous lesions of the cervix. So these are lesions in the cervix that are, are changes in the cells that are not a cancer yet, but are developing towards becoming a cancer. So that's what you're looking for when you do an exam to see if if cervical cancer, a, a screening exam, right? Correct. That's what the screening exam or the pap smear and HPV testing are looking for. Now, where along the cervix do cancers arise? Because you mentioned uterine is, is more common, but that's connected to the cervix, right? Yeah, so there's two main histological types of cervical cancer that uh, arise. So one is called a squamous cell cancer, and that comes from the cells kind of on the outside surface of the cervix. There's also something called an adenocarcinoma, which comes from the cells that are more in the canal of the cervix. And we're looking for both when we're screening for cervical cancer. Uterine cancer is actually completely separate from cervical cancer and develops from cells that are inside the body of the uterus, so higher up away from the cervix. So even though geographically they're connected or whatever, the, the cancers that arise are total, they're not related. Correct, they're, they're completely separate types of cancer. Um, you know, cervical cancer could go into the uterus and vice versa, uterine cancer can metastasize or come into the cervix, but the original, like a cancer originating in either the cervix or the uterus are actually two separate types of cancer. Let me ask you, are there factors that increase a woman's risk for cervical cancer? Yeah, so cervical cancer, the biggest risk factor that we know of is the human papillomavirus, or HPV for short. Um, and a majority of cervical cancers are caused by this virus. So factors that increase your risk of exposure to that virus increase your risk of uh, cervical cancer. So those are things like having multiple sexual partners, having early onset of sexual activity, or things like co-infection with STDs or um, things that suppress your immune system, either medications or medical conditions, because those make you more susceptible to the HPV. Does, uh, let me ask you this, do, does childbearing or the use of birth control pills, does that have any impact on the risk for cervical cancer? So in terms of childbearing, there's thought to be a little bit of an increased risk in patients who have three or more children, but this is more thought to be associated with actually increased risk of exposure to the HPV rather than the actual act of having multiple children. Um, as far as oral contraceptive pills or birth control pills, 
There is some data that shows a slight increase of risk of cervical cancer with those. And again, that's thought to be because of the changes that those pills um, cause in the cells of the cervix to actually prevent pregnancy. On the other hand, birth control pills are also uh, beneficial and have actually been shown to prevent endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer. So it's a little bit of a balance that way. Well, I do want to get back to HPV. Is this virus only transmitted sexually? Yes, so HPV is a sexually transmitted virus, so it can be transmitted either vaginal, oral, or anal sex. Now, every woman who gets exposed to HPV, uh, how likely is it that she will go on to develop cervical cancer? So, oftentimes, actually, the immune system is able to clear the virus, um, and this happens more commonly in younger women. Um, but we do know that the longer the HPV stays around uh, in the cervical cells, the more likely it is to cause those dysplastic changes or those dysplasia, the precancerous changes that then go on to develop um, a cancer. Usually this process happens over the period of several years. Well, I've heard about an HPV vaccine. How effective is that? Yeah, so the HPV vaccine, um, the one you may have heard about is something called Gardasil. Um, and it's actually quite effective in preventing the specific types of HPV that it targets. So Gardasil covers um, HPV 16 and 18, which are the two types of HPV that cause 70% of all cervical cancers. And there's actually now a newer version of Gardasil, which covers nine different types of HPV, so it's called Gardasil 9, and that covers that 16 and 18, but also five other high-risk types, as well as the two most common types that cause genital warts. So I highly recommend the vaccine in preventing cervical cancer because it does prevent those HPV um, types that cause, you know, 70% plus um, amount of cervical cancer. And that HPV vaccine, that's for women as well as men to take? Correct. Um, the vaccine is recommended for both boys and girls um, starting at ages 9 to 11, but anyone really up to age 26 should be vaccinated if they haven't been vaccinated previously. So this being sort of a newer vaccine, some of the older members of our community might not have, I mean, they didn't, this wasn't offered when they were those ages. So should they be going back and getting vaccinated at this point? So you know, someone for, in their 50s or something? Yeah. So patients that are age 27 to 45, the FDA has now approved um, the vaccine for that population. But they talk about it as being more of an individualized discussion. And this is what I do for my patients, too, based on risk um, of exposure to HPV in this population. Because most patients by age 27 to 45 have already been exposed to a lot of HPV. And so the vaccine is not necessarily as effective as it is in um, the younger population, but it's still recommended to be given in, in certain patients with higher risk factors. Um, it's not necessarily recommended in anyone over the age of 45 at this point. So there's a direct connection between HPV and cervical cancer. What about other cancers? Does this virus cause other cancers? Yeah, so the HPV virus is responsible for a couple of different cancers, specifically from the GYN side. Um, vaginal and vulvar cancers are also related to the HPV virus, um, as well as anal cancer, and then also some throat uh, cancers are associated with it. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with gynecologist Dr. Allison Roy about cervical cancers. So let me ask you about screening for cervical cancer. Um, how is that done starting at what age and, and how often? Yeah, so cervical cancer screening is done by performing something called a pap smear, an HPV test, or a co-test, which is both the pap smear and the HPV test together. Um, screening guidelines actually differ a little bit between the American Cancer Society and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists. Um, but based on the, the ACOG or the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists guidelines, this is what most OBGYNs use in their office in terms of recommendations. We recommend starting at age 21 um, with just a PAP test, and we do that every three years until age 30. And then starting at age 30, the recommendation is to perform co-testing, so PAP test as well as a test for HPV. And this is done up until age 65, and then we typically stop after age 65 as long as within the last 10 years, all the screening has been normal. So when you're doing these HPV tests or the PAP tests, uh, is the physician able to visualize if there's a cancer? Can they see it? Sometimes. So very early cervical cancers may not be visualized on just a speculum exam taking a look, or sometimes early dysplasia or those precancerous changes. But we can do a more advanced exam called a colposcopy. And this is actually similar to just a basic pelvic exam where you are up in the stirrups and we put a speculum in to look at the cervix, but we use a solution of acetic acid or vinegar to place on the cervix. And then we look at it with a microscope that's designed to look at the cells. And we can see changes up close in the cervix using that technique. And that's where we can take biopsies to get an actual official diagnosis if we see something that looks concerning. So if, if the pap test comes back irregular, then you would move on to that next step toward getting toward a diagnosis. Correct, yeah. So if the pap test comes back concerning for something, Oftentimes, the next step is to do a colposcopy, which is that specialized exam where we're looking kind of with a microscope at the cervix to see if there's areas that look abnormal. And then to actually diagnose it, we take biopsies of those areas. Are there symptoms of cervical cancer that a woman should be aware of? So there are sometimes no symptoms, but the most common things that happen are bleeding after sex or bleeding between periods or sometimes even new onset heavier bleeding that comes with the period. Um, some patients may also have pelvic pain or pain during sex. All right, so that's something to bring to your doctor's attention. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. You're having you know, new changes with bleeding patterns. Those are something that you know, every OBGYN wants to know about um, and is important in terms of screening for um, not only cancers, but other things that could be going on with the uterus or cervix. If you diagnose cervical cancer in a patient, what kinds of information are you able to tell the patient? Um, can, can you tell them how advanced it is, for instance? Yeah, so most of the time we're able to tell based on exam kind of how advanced the cervical cancer is. Um, certainly we use other techniques as, such as imaging um, with either a CT scan or a CAT scan. Uh, MRI is sometimes used, or sometimes a specialized CT scan called a PET CT um, can be used to look to see if the cancer spread outside of the areas that we can directly see with our eyes during an exam. 
So assuming that this is caught early, um, how is it treated usually? So early, if the cancer is early, oftentimes we can treat it with surgery. Um, so surgery to remove the area of the cancer. It, sometimes in very early cases, this can be done with something called a cold knife cone biopsy, which is basically a cone-shaped wedge out of the cervix that we take to remove the cancer. Or it can be done with removal of the uterus and cervix through a hysterectomy. Sometimes if the cancer is a little bit more advanced, we even do something called a radical hysterectomy, which is basically the same as a hysterectomy, but removal of some of the tissue on the sides of the cervix as well, um, called the parametrium. Well, uh, if a woman's been successfully treated for cervical cancers through any of these measures, does she continue to be at risk for redevelopment of cancer? So as with most cancers, there's always a risk of recurrence after treatment. And a lot of how much that risk is depends on factors of the stage of the um, cancer or sometimes even the type of cervical cancer, whether it's that squamous cell cancer that I talked about in the uh, beginning versus the, the glandular or the adenocarcinoma, whether it's coming from that surface of the cervix or the canal of the cervix. Um, so it, there's always a risk. Um, if it's caught early, most patients do really well, um, but there's always a potential of it coming back. So we do monitor afterwards. Well, what impact does cervical cancer have on a woman's life? Some of the operations you mentioned, the hysterectomy, that would affect her ability to have children, certainly. Um, but does it have an impact on menopause, for instance? Yeah, so a lot of the impact that cervical cancer has really depends, again, on how advanced it is at, at diagnosis and how much um, invasive procedure we have to do to basically treat the cancer. So patients that require a hysterectomy um, may or may not require their ovaries to be removed depending on you know, how advanced the cancer is. The other way that we can treat um, cervical cancer if it's more advanced is with chemo and radiation. And with that or a hysterectomy that requires removal of the ovaries, then you are going to go into menopause with treatment if you're in an age that you haven't gone through menopause yet. And this is because radiation can affect the ovaries and obviously removal of the ovaries takes away the hormones that you need basically um, that puts you into menopause. And so. In some cases, ovarian function can be preserved, but for a lot of patients, you do lose the ovarian function and go into early menopause. However, because cervical cancer is not typically hormonally sensitive, it is possible to give hormone replacement back to young patients who are in early menopause because of treatment. Well, again, it sounds like it's important to be screened for this regularly so that it is caught early so that you have more options and, and more chance for a good recovery. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, this is one of the cancers that we actually do have good screening techniques for. Um, and so catching it early is the biggest thing that we can do, um, you know, to treat it early, catch it early, even catching it when it's in that pre-cancer stage and removing it then so that you don't go on to develop a cancer. Great. Well, this is wonderful information. Thank you so much to Dr. Allison Roy. She's an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.